Some juicy, juicy bits in that, that Bible reading and some familiar words as well that for thousands of years, or at least a thousand and nearly two people have read. Kev, I'm just going to feed your microphone to the plant again. Um, it is taking over. So I just want to take 10 minutes or so to draw out some of the things about that reading that I think are really so significant and so exciting. Um, how would you answer the phrase or complete the phrase, it wouldn't be Christmas without? There'd be a number of things, a number of traditions. It wouldn't be Christmas without. It wouldn't be Christmas without a walk with the family on Christmas Day, or it wouldn't be Christmas without the kids arguing, or it wouldn't be Christmas without granddad getting drunk and falling asleep in the corner, or it wouldn't, get, it wouldn't be Christmas without... For me, it's listening to the Pogues, uh, fairy tale of New York on the radio. It wouldn't be Christmas without that. And um, actually, I, I heard the other day that that song is the most popular Christmas song of the last century. We're only 19 years into this century. But it's the, last, the most popular Christmas song of the last 19 years. Why is that? Well, I have an inkling as to why that might be. And I think it has a lot to do with what Christmas is really all about, children, is what they say. What Christmas is really all about. The song, The Fairy Tale of New York, encapsulates in the lyrics of the song some of the themes that resonate deeply with us in our cynical post-Christian secular empire. Um, you scumbag, you maggot, you cheap, lousy, etc., Merry Christmas, your blank. I pray God it's our last. Um, happy Christmas. I mean, there's no better way to say happy Christmas than I pray it's our last. Happy Christmas and good riddance to all a good night or whatever the phrase is. To all a good Christmas. What is the phrase? I mean, not for now. Um, but that phrase, I pray God it's our last, they encapsulate in that song something of the, the cynicism or the darkness or the, just the brokenness that there is. And we think, oh, Life at Christmas is just as hard as the rest of the time of the year, except we make ourselves busier to distract ourselves from the fact that it's quite hard and quite lonely and quite difficult. And, and what I love about the real Christmas of the Bible, the Christmas, the first Christmas, and why I had Luke's reading and the lengthy bit that we listened to is because of what Luke does in bringing together some of those important things. Now, the first thing so there's four stories of the account of Jesus in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four different authors telling four different perspectives, four different ways of thinking about the Jesus story. And Luke, he's writing for people like you and me, people who don't know the Bible, who aren't like ingrained and immersed in the Old Testament stories. And so right at the beginning, he says, he says, I'm writing this for you, most excellent Theophilus, which is all of you. You are most excellent Theophilus. And he says to him, he says, many people have gone to a lot of effort to write down and record all the things that have taken place. And he said, so it seemed good to me to pull it all together. So what you get from Luke right at the beginning is this claim that he has used his reasoning skills, his skills as a, as a historian, to try to pull together all the different strands and ideas there were out there about Jesus and compile them into this comprehensive document that he says to Theophilus, you can trust me, I'm a historian. Or you can trust me, I didn't just find it on the internet, I've done my homework. Now, we're living in an age where we don't know who to trust. Um, what used to be called propaganda is now just called the news uh, or advertising. And, and it, it or, or the internet has just confused us. We don't know who to trust. What Luke is saying right at the beginning is, you can trust me because I've done my homework. And then he lists several stories. You know, there's a very 
There's lots of different ways that we think about the world and understand and learn things in the world. One of them is through our experiences. We know what we know because we've experienced it. I don't need to convince you that honey is sweet. You just know it's sweet because you've experienced it. Another way that we understand the world is through our reasoning capacity. Luke says you can apply your reasoning capacity, your thinker, you can apply that to Christianity. This isn't a just hope for the best and have a nice feeling and be on your merry way and pray some prayers. This is a, you can look into this. You can do the research. And in the Christmas story, or the nativity story of Jesus' birth, you see different responses to the news of Jesus. You see the angels who break forth in song, just as we've been doing. And the shepherds who travel to go and worship the baby, just as as Christians, we live our lives worshipping Jesus. You also see in Matthew's gospel, which we didn't read out, Herod's response. Herod heard the threat of Jesus and, as many of us would know, tried to kill all the newborn babies in the area to eradicate the Christmas message. And those responses, I would argue, are all entirely appropriate responses. You might understand the first two. Herod's, you might go, is that really an appropriate response? Well, not necessarily. I'm not suggesting it's it's okay to go and kill babies. But it is an appropriate response to realize Jesus' claim that he was making, the claim that the, the Magi were making to Herod when they visited was, a king has been born who's a bigger king than you, Herod. Or Jesus is making a claim on the world that requires and demands an answer. God is suggesting that he has entered human history and is now in charge of everything. So it's an appropriate response to reject it, to think, hang on, that's, ra- that's radically offensive. So there's three responses. The only inappropriate response you might say to the Christmas message or the, the story of Jesus is to go, oh, that's interesting. Luke says, I've looked into it. The shepherds went to worship. Herod tried to kill him. All appropriate responses. Perhaps the most challenging one is the, not that fast. And that's the response that, if we're honest, a lot of us are most familiar with. Because Christmas is just overwhelmingly busy and there's lots of that go on and then the church comes along and says this is the real meaning of Christmas and then people go actually no it's the winter solstice and etc it goes on forever um back and forth and I want to let you into a secret about Christmas and this may surprise you to hear me say this but I don't really like nativity plays I don't really like nativity pictures <laughs> I don't really like I mean, I went to, I went to a show, and my, we, we gave my son a, a, a tea towel on, the, on Thursday, and he did his show in front of the kids, and I thought, this is lovely, but I don't really like it. I'm not sure I'm allowed to say that in public. I've just seen his mother at the back, and she gave me a look. You can't say that. That's inappropriate. That's rude. And I've been thinking about this for a while. Why is it that it causes me such a concern? Why don't I like all the twee Victorian pictures of Jesus in a stable with these lowing oxes and all of that? Partly because I don't really see that in the Bible. We had it read to us. There wasn't much mention of it. You saw that. But partly, I just think it sentimentalizes and it domesticates a message and a truth that is otherwise wild and is intended to be wild and challenging. And by singing, away in a manger, no crying he makes, we pacify the message of Christmas and the message, the offensive message of Jesus coming into the world. Now, in the reading that we had, Mary breaks out in a song called the Magnificat. It's a Latin term. where she, She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Why? Well, she says in the message why she's so excited. She says, 
God has seen my humble estate. God has taken a step towards her. And the reason the Christmas message is so radical is because in the story of God coming in the, in the man, Jesus, we see God offering an answer to the deepest longing you and I have. And it's a longing that psychologists say is a deeper longing even than your longing for food or for sex. The drives in us for those things, this is a deeper longing. It's the longing and the desire for attachment or connection with another. We know this because we're obsessed with social media and um, trying to get as good an approval rating as we can on our timelines. I know this because I am an addict of approval and do a lot of things in my life that baffle me that only when I look back and go, why did I do that? I realize it's because I wanted people to like me. And so I'm on a detox from social media at the moment. I've turned my phone into a black and white dumb phone because I'm just, I'm trying to break free from this, what I see in me is this craving for people to approve of me, to like me. I post something online and then check it five minutes later. Has anybody liked it? Did somebody comment? They haven't. I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm depressed. My life is over. They have. I'm amazing. People love me for five minutes until I think, now what else do I need to do? I mean, when my son was born, I even took a photograph of his first poo and put it on Facebook. <laughs> Why did I do that? Well, I was a proud dad and slightly deranged. I put a picture of his poo on Facebook because I wanted to shock people for them to go, oh, Jez, you're such an idiot. And for me to I know, but you're approving of me. You're feeding this appetite, this desire in me to be loved and noticed. This is going into strange places, I know. But when Mary says, God has seen my humble estate. He's, I mean, she's a poor, penniless teenager. And she celebrates the fact that in the Christmas story, the meaning behind it is that this, God has entered the world to connect with you, to forgive you, to set you free from the habits and destructive patterns in your life that are destroying your life. God has come to offer you an affirmation and an approval rating that you could never get on your own. Someone once said that the, the gospel message, the message of Christianity at its heart is this, that you and I are more loved than we could ever dare to imagine. And we're also more broken than we could ever really know. But you're more loved than you could ever dare to imagine. And so to pacify that message, to tame it, to stop it invading our lives, we put kids in tea towels and we put Victorian postcards of a, of, a, of a lowing ox and a baby sucking its thumb in a manger. In Luke's account, the coming of Jesus is like, it's like the beginning. Like he, he barely, I mean, it's not even mentioned in Mark and John's gospel, the other two of the other gospels, it's not even mentioned. Why? Because for them... The coming of the man is interesting, but what really matters is what he came to do. To forgive, to remove shame, to offer approval, connection with God, relationship with the one that the human race is estranged from and broken with. Now Luke's telling of that story is amazing. Um, and part of the reason why it's amazing is because he pulls out from all of those sources, he pulls out all of the different people that Jesus interacted with and affected, but he selects a few really key ones. And as you read Luke's gospel, what you see is Jesus spent time with the poor. 
the marginalized. Jesus gave dignity and value to children, to women, in a society that said that women and children were non-persons. They couldn't even have a right to vote or to, to do anything in society. Their testimony wasn't even valid in a court of law. Jesus honored them. Jesus taught and educated women and children in a society that didn't. Now, of course, for us, this is the water we swim in, the, the society of equal rights and, and dignities for all. Those are Christian ideas that Luke records for us. Those didn't come out of thin air. And classical societies of, of ancient Roman Greece didn't do that. They said that the poor should be kept in their place and that to help the poor is to upset the social order. Jesus came and he identified with the poor. He identified with the marginalized. He identified in his death as a common criminal. And I want to leave or finish with this. Jesus said three things about why he came. So three, three times Jesus used the phrase, the Son of Man, which is how he talked about himself. He said, the Son of Man has come. And he said that phrase three times, saying three different things. The first thing he said is, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. So if you're lost, Jesus has come for you. He said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. The second thing he said is, the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. Those two things, the Son of Man has come, the Son of Man has come, he's come to seek and to save the lost, and he's come to offer his life as a ransom for many. Those are why he came. But then Jesus also, and Luke draws this out in his, in his gospel, because Luke talks about Jesus visiting the poor and the women and the children and the marginalized, but he also says, he talks about Jesus doing something else. Jesus said of himself, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Which at Christmas we go, oh, I can identify with that. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And in Luke's Gospel, if you ever read it, you'll see Jesus is always on the way to a dinner party. He's either coming from having food or going to have food food and I don't know if you've noticed this but Christian festivals always involve food I mean when it, even when it came to Easter I think someone else has said this even when it came to Easter like it's Jesus's death this is a bit harsh what do we do let's put it on a bun <laughs> let's let's make this turn into another festival we feed people all the time why 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 on earth would the the third statement of what Jesus said about why he come why would he associate that with food the first two I can understand those are religious noble ideas to seek and to save the lost to die yes I get that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Why? Well, it goes back to what I said at the start, that is our deepest human need. It's the need for connection, the need for approval. When you eat with someone, what you're saying to them is, I accept you. I'm willing to sit opposite you at a table, willing to have dinner with you, willing to get to know you, willing to share my life with you. Jesus came eating and drinking as a statement, a metaphor of saying, I've come to get to know you. I don't just want you to sing songs and re recite verse. I want you to know me. I want to sit with you. I want to eat with you. In fact, the famous verse in the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible, it says, oh, behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says. And if anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and feast with him. Jesus has come to seek and to save. Jesus has come to offer his life for you. Jesus has come to get to know you, to approve of you, to forgive you. And that's why we celebrate this at Christmas. It's why we eat and drink. It's why we spend time with one another. It's why in the midst of all of the, the cynicism and the darkness of the Pogues fairy tale of New York, we can say, 
I don't pray, God, it's our last. I pray it's just our first. If this is your first time in church with us, I don't pray it's your last. I pray it's your first. Come on a journey with us of getting to know Jesus more together because he's a person. He's not just an idea. And of all these things, what did it say of Mary at the end? It said she treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. What a beautiful phrase. To treasure these things, to ponder them in her hearts.